Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. Our nation's founders gathered in taverns to enjoy lively political conversations over a local brew, and so do we. It's a special Pints in Politics edition of River to River, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Aaron Jordan. I'd like to introduce our panel for tonight. First, we have Althea Cole, Gazette columnist. Tom Barton, Gazette political reporter, and Todd Dorman, Gazette insights and opinion editor. Now, I, you know, watching the audience file in tonight, you know, we're not too far away, a little more than a week from Halloween, and Mm -hmm. I thought we might see some costumes. I did too, you know, frankly, but I think in our our era of political correctness, that's getting harder and harder, you know? Find a Halloween costume that's not offensive, right? Mm. And it's got to be unique at the same time. I heard a really good idea, though. Why not come dressed as Brian Ferentz? Not offensive at all. I appreciate that that joke very much. That's a good one. That was was ripped off the internet where we, let's face it, we all get our good jokes from there, right? Okay. Well, like I said, we have a lot, lot of topics to, to get into here. We've already got some good questions submitted from the audience, and you can continue to do that throughout the show. Um, as usual, we'll have the first half where we're talking about national politics, then we'll have an intermission and come back and talk about state and local. So kind of diving in on that, President Joe Biden, mindful of the upcoming elections, announced today he would release 15 million more barrels of oil from the nation's strategic reserve in hopes of making gas prices go down. I read that gas prices are seven cents lower than this summer, but still 50 cents higher per gallon than a year ago. I wanted to ask our panel, how big of a toll will gas prices and inflation in general take on Democrats overall um, in the November 8th election? I think, um, you know, a, a pretty hefty one just from looking at the polling. You know, the latest Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll released this week shows majority of the, majorities of Iowans disapprove um, of the president and his job performance and say that the country is heading in the wrong direction, direction criticizing Biden's handling of the economy and, and social issues. And then, you know, poll after poll shows that um, inflation in the economy as well as crime and immigration are top concerns from voters ahead of the midterm elections. You know, the president's approval ratings um, did tick up here in the state um, by about eight percentage points from July, but that's up eight points from an approval rating of 27%. You know, critics have a long list of grievances, again, with the economy um, top on that list. And um, while Biden and congressional Democrats have um, passed and signed bills into law to try and bring down the cost of gas as well as the cost of medical care, you know, much of that relief has yet to be felt and is not going to actually be implemented until after the midterms. Meanwhile, you know, interest rates have continued to climb and um, supply chain issues, um, prices, you know, continue to hit Iowans in the pocketbook. Althea, what do you think about inflation? Of course, Republican candidates talking a lot about inflation with, it seems, according to polls and, of course, what Tom says there, with some success on on people's attitudes and and voting, voting preferences. 
Um, you know, is it, is it the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken? Um, are people angry about inflation because Republicans are telling them to be angry about it? Or are Republicans, you know, uh, talking about inflation with their campaigning because people are angry about inflation? You know, it could be a little bit of both. In politics, you, you know, campaign on what works. And right now, inflation is probably the number one uh, driving factor of people's political decisions. So it's going to be a big deal. Well, and, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously... This isn't surprising, and, and and voters are going to take out their frustration on the on the ruling party when you have an economy that's potentially suffering, and you've got high gasoline prices and inflation to the level we have it now. The question is, though, if Republicans take over Congress, is inflation going to subside, and our gas prices going to go down? And the answer is probably not, at least not right away, because these are these are global global situations. I mean, the petroleum is traded on a global market. There are, you know, lots of factors that go into the pricing of petroleum. We saw OPEC is cutting back on uh, production. The war in Ukraine is still disrupting oil supplies from Russia, which is not where we get a lot of our oil, but in the global market, that's significant. And then with inflation, again, a, a global phenomenon. I mean, we see in, in uh, the United Kingdom, they've got 10.1% inflation, which is year over year, which is higher than what we've seen here. So... The ability of, I mean, if it was easy to make gas prices go down and inflation go away, then Congress would do that every time. The president would propose things every time there's inflation. It's complicated and, and difficult. And I mean, I understand why voters may want to switch parties because of those issues, but I, I don't expect Republicans to have any more success attacking those global issues than, than Democrats have. Let's turn to a key issue that uh, especially uh, Democrats are, are talking about, uh, certainly in the conversations I've had with the Democratic candidates that have been on, on River to River. Uh, this week, uh, Liz Mathis, for instance, uh, Christina Bohannon both asked about this. They like to talk about the Supreme Court ruling that um, nulled um, Roe v. Wade earlier this year. And this week, President Biden vowed that if voters elect more Democratic senators and keep the U.S. House, he will send a bill to Congress to codify abortion protections into law. I'd like to hear uh, the panel's thoughts and the discussions that you've heard about how this has changed or perhaps not changed discussions about uh, abortion uh, as we look to Kansas and other examples uh, in the country where this is, this is actually on the ballot, though not here in Iowa. You know, regarding Kansas, what did they do? They voted uh, an abortion ban to their constitution. They voted it down. Um, from a conservative Republican perspective, I think it is very, very easy to underestimate the number of conservative Republicans who are absolutely not in favor of a total abortion ban. And we're finding that out from voters and from legislators right now. You know, depending on what Iowa does, I don't think, if Iowa tries to go for a total abortion ban, I don't think it would get out of a subcommittee. Um, I think if it did a subcommittee, probably not a full committee. Again, do not underestimate the number of Republicans who are not in favor of a total abortion ban. Well, and I, I think you're seeing that play out with Republican candidates kind of moderating their stance or moderating their statements as it comes when it, when it comes to, to abortion. And you saw some of that play out with uh, the gubernatorial debate between uh, Kim Reynolds and Deidre DeGere, you know, pressing the governor on, you know, whether she and Republicans in the state would, um, you know, push for further restrictions if they would push for something uh, beyond or more than the six-week uh, six fetal heartbeat bill. And, uh, you know, the governor has repeatedly said over 
over and over that her focus is on lifting that injunction over the six-week fetal heartbeat abortion ban. And then, I guess, at the, at the federal level in the U.S. Senate race, um, you know, we've heard from Senator Grassley, who in the past has been um, a supporter uh, of legislation that would implement uh, a nationwide abortion ban, and then pushed and asked about the nationwide ban that was proposed by um, Senator Lindsey Graham from from South Carolina. You know, he said that uh, you know this is now a state issue, and I'm happy to to, to to leave it there, and 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 said that he would not vote for Senator Graham's bill um, if it comes to the floor now. Whether you, you believe them or not, I mean, I, I think it's important to show um, that, that, you know, Chuck Grassley in the past would have probably had a much different answer. But in today's yeah. political world, today's political climate, you know, looking at the backlash that um, uh, has occurred from the Dobbs decision, you know, I, I think you see Republicans seeing that they need to moderate their stance and seeing that even in red states like Kansas, it can, it can have um, a detrimental effect for them. I think what's sort of remarkable is that having watched Iowa politics for a while, too long probably, but uh, I mean the fact that someone's saying that they want to ban abortion at say six weeks with exceptions for the rape, incest, and the life of the mother, how that's like a moderate position. I mean, you know, 20 years ago that would have been considered a very, very extreme position to take. I mean, the legislature would do parental notification. They would try to do some waiting period bills. They would sort of nibble around the edges of the legal protections on abortion and try to just sort of put some restrictions but not ban it. And then we, we this issue progressed to the point where, or regressed to the point where you had started to have a lot of sort of strident, you know, conservative politicians talk about abortion ban with no exceptions. Because there, I mean, there are some re re with religious views, people with religious views that say, you know, even a, a child conceived in, in rape or incest is, is a life worth protecting. So we've evolved on this. I think in trying to moderate it, though, I mean, you can still point out that the six-week so-called heartbeat abortion ban in Iowa is going to ban the vast, vast majority of abortions. I mean, most women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. Uh, the, the cases of rape, incest, and life of the mother, while important to protect, are fairly rare. I mean, this, so this is basically a de facto abortion ban for most women in Iowa, and kind of selling it as, well, these exceptions make it moderate. It's like, it's not moderate. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very extreme position. 15 weeks with exceptions is, is an extreme position. The, the, I mean, and then accusing Democrats of wanting to allow abortion up until birth or, or maybe even after, which I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe abortion up until 18? Up until, up until they're adult? I, I don't know, I mean, they can, kids can be jerks. But, uh, I mean, it, you know, they're, they're trying to, through, through these exceptions and then saying that the Democrats are more extreme, they're just trying to sort of put up a smoke cloud that covers their own extreme views. And that, you know, I, I don't know that voters will buy it, maybe they will, but, but that's, I mean, that's what's happening. There are no Democrats in Iowa that are advocating for anything like the governor accused Deidre DeGiro of the other night, this abortion to term, full term abortion, I think some people call it, and I, you know, it just, it doesn't exist. 
Let me remind our radio listeners uh, on Iowa Public Radio, you're listening to a special edition of River to River, Pints and Politics, partnering up with the Gazette, uh, my co-host Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. On our panel, Tom Barton, Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief, Todd Dorman, Gazette columnist, opinion editor, and Althea Cole, uh, Gazette columnist. And you mentioned early voting going on now uh, through November 7th, the day before uh, the election. How many of you have voted already? I saw some, I saw some, I have voted uh, pins out there. Let's pivot a little bit uh, from the issues that we've been discussing at the moment uh, up to the races. And, uh, you know, if you've been paying attention, as we'll consider us, all of us in this room, political junkies, so we're, we've been hearing again and again that the Democrats may hold on to the Senate, even conceivable to uh, go beyond 50-50 to increase uh, their majority. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, the House looks less likely for the Democrats to hold on. Uh, if Republicans net five more seats in the House, they will retake the majority. Iowa's congressional races could be a key part in determining which party holds power. And unusually, we only have uh, four congressional districts. Three of those are determined to be uh, competitive. So I'd like the panel to talk a little bit about which congressional districts you're focusing on and you see as the most competitive and, and why. Tom, will you start us off? Uh, well, I guess the, the ones that I'm focusing on the most are the ones, you know, here in our, our backyard, the second congressional district, the race between uh, Ashley Hinson and Liz Mathis, and the first congressional district, the race between uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks and um, Christina Bohannon. I think both of those races um, are, are competitive um, by the fact that you see national parties um, getting behind and backing uh, candidates in, in, in both those races. Um, Truth be told, though, I think the first uh, congressional district race between um, Christina Bohannon and um, Marionette Miller-Meeks is probably um, more competitive just by the fact of, of how that district is, is drawn with including um, Scott County and Johnson County, um, having Iowa City and having, having Davenport. Um, you know, it's going to make it a tough district for a Republican even uh, an incumbent, um, and uh, also, you know, looking at the fact that Marionette Miller-Meeks, you know, won in 2020 by just six votes. Mm -hmm. Different, different district, but different, different, dif different district, but um, you know, it, it's 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 still going to be uh, an uphill climb, an uphill road, right, um, for for a Republican, even an incumbent, and um, you know, she's acknowledged that publicly. And, um, you know, uh, you have a competitive candidate in Christina Bohannon, yeah. uh, University of Iowa law professor and, and a state representative who um, has been, uh, yeah, running a, a tough uh, campaign. Just wanted to ask the other two panelists, what races are you watching and why? I generally just or watch football. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, well, obviously, I mean, I... Every morning when I look out the window, I'm looking at this newly drawn second district, so I'm clearly focused on that. Uh, and my congresswoman is uh, from Marion also, so uh, that's, I've been focused on that. And probably what I've written the most about in that district is how uh, Representative Henson has sort of, and, and she is a Lynn Mar parent, I mean, she is, but how she sort of poured gasoline on the on the controversy over the, the transgender support policies that, at Linmar. It, it's a local issue, it's a school board issue. I can under, you know, parents are, are weighing in on, on both sides. I'm not sure that, you know, making it 
a major, trying to make it a major issue in a congressional campaign is good for the community, good for the, the kids who are seeking support. Uh, I, I just, I think it's, you know, she's exploiting this controversy to, you know, scare conservative voters into, into voting her way, which I don't know who else they would vote for. So it's just kind of emblematic of her time in Congress, which I think, you know, I look back when she ran for the legislature the first time, she was fairly moderate on a lot of issues, but, but since, you know, being in the legislature and now going to Congress, she's been, you know, basically getting her plays out of the Trump playbook and, and being a fairly divisive and very partisan figure. And, and I think that's, uh, I think to voters in the district I live in, I think that's disappointing. You know, in, in any campaign, you want to go after what energizes your voters. And as uncomfortable as it is to admit or understand, um, the transgender issue does energize a lot of voters on the conservative side. It isn't out of anger or fear. Um, they see these policies, they have questions about them. Um, and they're afraid to speak out because, <laughs> because when they do, they get some backlash. Um, I myself, you know, I write about it from my perspective. I have questions about the policy. Uh, I ask questions about those policy to the, you know, school district. Um, I ask parents what they think and, you know, again, it's a lot of stuff that they are afraid to say publicly, but then they hear Ashley Hinson, you know, telling them things that make them feel that she understands what their concerns are. And yeah, that is going to energize them as voters. That's just politics 101. But again, if they're afraid to speak out, you know, you shouldn't be surprised when somebody who says things that make you feel heard, make you feel heard. A new round of Iowa poll results from the Des Moines Register and Mediacom show Chuck Grassley leading his Democratic challenger, Mike Franken, by three percentage points compared to eight percentage points in July. Um, some online pundits uh, downgraded the race from safe for Grassley to likely, uh, the Des Moines Register reported. So, and this has happened as Mike Franken has been accused by a former staffer of kissing her without her permission. What's contributing to these latest poll numbers and that race tightening up a bit? I think Chuck Grassley has, may have stuck around too long. And I mean that, well, and you know, that, that happens. I remember back in the 90s when, when, you know, Neil Smith was running for re-election and he had been in Congress for, you know, 40 years. And Greg Gansky picked him off, drove the car around that was the year that he was, Neil Smith was elected and, and all of that, uh, which I think Franken may have been, had some, been posing with some 59 vintage cars for the year that, that Chuck Grassley joined the legislature. But, you know, I, 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 I just think that people, you know, expect their public servants to, you know, to serve and then know when it's, you know, time to stop serving. And, and maybe they're thinking 89 years old is, is potentially that time, considering that if he were to finish his term, he'll be 95. And that's, you know, he's, he's active and in good shape by all accounts, but I get letters from other, from readers who are 89 or in their 90s that are like, he shouldn't be a senator, I couldn't be a senator, why, why is he still a senator? So it's, you know, it's just not, it's, it's just not, it's people in his own generation that are questioning that. And I think at some point as, as, the, as the Republican Party sort of turned rightward and became more strident and then even more so in the Trump years, I think Grassley has made, a, has made a calculation that his biggest political threat would come from the right. 
someone running against him in a Republican primary, so he made the decision to go along and support President Trump and do you know, Mitch McConnell's bidding on the, on the Supreme Court nominees and give conservatives the court that they needed to overturn Roe and change separation of church and state and, and gun laws and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, Democrats in Iowa, my age, maybe older, maybe a little younger, that used to vote for Chuck Grassley because they thought he was sort of an independent voice and a pro-Iowa guy and was, you know, with us on a lot of Iowa issues, have decided that he's kind of just a partisan Republican like all the others that are in, in the Senate right now, or many of the others, and so then, so he's lost that coalition, which narrows his margin, and that, that's a factor too. I think Chuck has the fight of his life on his hands. I mean, yeah, I'll admit that as a Republican. I, um, he's got some ground to make up with independence to say the very, very least. I think the same thing that's on independents' minds are the same thing that's on Democrats' minds, and it's that uh, they think that uh, he's been there too long. I mean, you look at the polling, and you know, two-thirds of the respondents, uh, you know, said that his age is a concern. Um, and even among those who say that um, they they support or will support uh, the senator, um, a third of those as well said that 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 age is a concern. One of the most competitive congressional races we haven't touched on, and we're going to talk about the governor's race, uh, I think, in our second half of our program. But let's talk about Iowa's new, uh, newly drawn third district, where the incumbent uh, U.S. Representative Cindy Axney, the Democrat, the sole Democrat in the delegation from Iowa in Washington, running for her third term against Republican State Senator Zach Nunn. Um, what the polling says about that, but uh, is uh, what sets this race apart as a competitive, one of Iowa's three most competitive congressional races. Nunn's a strong candidate, and I think pretty much from the, from the outset of this particular political cycle, the 2022 general election race, Axney was already listed among as one of the most vulnerable Democrats in Congress, so it's, it's pretty much been from the get-go. Yeah. And we know she had her strength in, in the last two elections in, in Polk County. She's got to just well, overperform in Polk County to make up for the, the other more I, rural counties, right? I think that's the only county that she won. So, I mean, yeah, she's got to get the vote out there. And she's had close elections her, her, the first two times. So it's not surprising that it's going to be closer this time when the, the, you know, the political climate favors Republicans. Yeah. In the way that that district is drawn, it's um, it's you know more of a purple district, um, and uh, it um, picks up some more uh, western counties in, in in western Iowa that you know tend to be more conservative. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with this special edition of River to River Pints and Politics. Iowa Public Radio teaming up with the Gazette. My co-host Aaron Jordan, aside next to me, uh, Tom Barton, Todd Dorman, and Althea Cole of the Gazette with us. And we have a fabulous audience. You're in the dark. <laughs> you aren't usually in the dark. That's a bad thing to say in a political conversation. You folks are in the dark. We'll give you a moment to refresh your drinks. Thanks for coming out tonight. Back in just a moment with more River to River Pints and Politics. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th, through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We're back with this Pints and Politics edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Erin Jordan. Recording this on Thursday evening at CSPS in uh, Cedar Rapids. And we want to give a big thanks to CSPS, don't we? Yeah, let's do it. We love having them host us on our panel today from the Gazette, Todd Dorman, Tom Barton, and Althea Cole. And they're still here. This half hour, more discussion and more questions uh, from our audience. And we saved for the second half our discussion of the governor's race. Monday night, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and Democratic challenger Deidre DeGier had a debate uh, hosted by Iowa PBS. Uh, They disagreed on abortion policy, eminent domain, tax cuts, among other things. And uh, I want to get your take on this solo debate because... Uh, the only one that will happen, uh, Reynolds has refused DeGere's request to do three debates, as the governor did in 2018. What are your impressions of that debate? Uh, let's, let's hear from our panelists. <laughs> Whoever wants to go first. I mean, I, so, uh, you read what I thought, so I'll give you guys a chance. <laughs> But I'll, I'll wait. I'm sure, fair, fair enough. I mean, I, I, I think both candidates um, uh, did what they needed to do um, to provide a, a contrast of their visions for the state and, and, and where they stand. And I think that that was readily and apparently clear as to, you know, the, the vision that Deidre DeGere is putting forward for the state compared to the, the vision that uh, Kim Reynolds is putting forward. Uh, and um, there were no gaffes. None of them, you know, put their foots in their mouth. We saw, as you mentioned, Ben, um, clear um, delineations, clear distinctions between the two of them as it comes, as it pertains to tax policy, abortion policy, and and more importantly, I mean, the focal point for this race has been on on education and and, and school funding and what the future of of Iowa's education system is is, is gonna look like. I think that, um, you know, Deidre DeGere um, did a good job on talking about the ramifications, the effects of the governor's um, proposed so-called school choice proposal of taking taxpayer funding um, and using that funding to um, provide Iowa family scholarships to allow them to send children to, to, to private schools and, you know, what that does to public education and, more importantly, what that does for, for rural Iowa, for rural districts, right? In a lot of these um, rural communities, um, the school district, the school system, you know, is, you know, either the largest employer or one of the largest employers, right? But more importantly, you know, it's, it's, it's the sense of identity for those communities, right? And what happens when um, you start diverting taxpayer dollars um, away from, you know, those public schools, those rural communities that don't have private schools to allow kids to send them to Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, Polk County, Johnson County, other places around the state. As I said, I, I wrote about this today. One thing I didn't get to expand on much is, you know, you, I've seen a, a lot of debates, just a lot of, it's, they keep me up at night. It's all the debates <laughs> I've seen, all the, all the bad moments. But one moment I thought was really sort of just telling and I don't know it was you, they were arguing or they were having a back and forth about abortion and and Dejir, Deidre Dejir told the story of this 
third grader who couldn't button her pants, and it turned out that she was three months pregnant. And, I mean, that's a, that's a heartbreaking story, and when the, the governor sort of interjected and said something up to the effect of, so you favor late-term abortion. It's like, so, I mean, sometimes you just, I, I understand you wanna win the point, and you wanna score, and, and get your point across, and make your opponent look bad, but I thought at that moment that maybe summoning a, a little bit of humanity might have been a better approach to just sort of snapping you support late-term abortion because you've told the story about a, a third grader who under the governor's six-week abortion ban would have basically no options. And I mean, that's part of the problem with this issue is that you know, on one hand it's a political issue, but it's also a human issue. In fact, all of these issues are human issues. And sometimes I just don't think the governor feels the need to sort of put her stances in, in those human terms. And, and Dejir, I thought, did a really good job in multiple parts of that debate, basically connecting her stances to the experiences of actual people. So I thought Dejir did very well. I thought the governor was, was too defensive. And, uh, but you know, she's up 17 points according to the Iowa poll. So I, I guess, you know, what difference does it make? It's all over. <laughs> maybe not, but probably. No, maybe not, but probably. <laughs> Althea, your, your observations about the single debate uh, between the, the governor and her challenger? Well, I thought the conversation was excellent between the two candidates. And, and truthfully, I didn't catch the whole debate, unfortunately, because I had other commitments uh, related to other responsibilities. What struck me most was the format of the debate. Um, and this got actually a little bit of blowback on Twitter boy, did that, I need to change my notification settings on Twitter. Um, I, I remember writing the other night something to the effect of highest compliments to the moderators, uh, one of them being the Gazette's own Aaron Murphy, um, O.K. Henderson, and then Dave Price. And apparently a lot of people were upset that they didn't moderate the debate more, that they didn't limit the uh, number of minutes or seconds that the candidates could each speak. And all of a sudden it was, well, she got more speaking time than the other. But I thought the conversation was great, and I, I'm sorry, I have to say both candidates really came to play. Um, I don't think that one was particularly favored over another. It was a conversation, and it was a debate where the ideas really drove the conversation, and I was very pleased about that. I want to switch gears here because our time is going fast. Um, Iowa has a gun rights amendment on the ballot that says, quote, any and all restrictions... Um, unquote, to the right to bear arms, quote, shall be subject to strict scrutiny. Some opponents say it will make it harder to pass any future gun control laws in the state. I don't think we've had any substantial gun control laws in recent years, so I'm wondering why this was proposed. Well, it's about the future. Right. It's about basically putting instructions in the Constitution directing how judges are going to judge gun restrictions or gun safety measures or whatever what you want to call them that a future legislature might want to pass. Uh, and that's, that's the part I don't like about it, is that you're basically locking future courts, future legislati legislatures into, into the politics of right now. And I mean, just as the, the founding fathers who were quaffing their, their beers at the, whatever you say, Ben, <laughs> the, the, the local tavern, uh, didn't really realize that, you know, there would be weapons with such firepower coming down the, the pike in a couple hundred and a half years. We don't know 50 years from now what sort of 
weapons are going to fall under the right to bear arms. And so putting that in the Constitution, basically, it's, it's like we're going to freeze today's gun politics in amber, and we're all going to have to live with that, regardless of whether future people in Iowa want it to be that way or, or not. I guess they can amend the Constitution, but, you know, that's, that's not exactly easy. The context of this is that um, there were, um, over the last, I don't know, decade, decade plus, cases that were going before um, federal courts and, um, you know, the NRA and, and gun rights groups, um, you know, were, were not faring well. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, challenges to various gun restrictions, various gun laws um, were, were, were being upheld um, about... 90% of the time, and so the NRA devised this strategy to focus at um, the, the state level and encouraging state legislatures um, to pass these strict scrutiny amendments to essentially kind of be a, a firewall against any future court decisions that, um, you know, they feel would be uh, an infringement on um, the Second Amendment. Recently, the, the, the legal landscape has, has kind of changed with um, Supreme Court um, ruling um, out of the case in, um, in, in New York. But, um, I mean, prior to that, on the federal level, you had a lot of these federal cases that weren't going the way of the NRA, and so they developed this kind of state-by-state -state strategy, and, um, and, and that's why you have this, this gun amendment, is, is wanting to kind of protect, again, as, as, as Todd said, against um, any you know, potential future um, court decisions. As we get toward the end of our, our program here, Pints and Politics, a special edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio and the Gazette uh, teaming up here. We have uh, on our panel Althea Cole, Todd Dorman, and uh, Tom Barton with us, my co-host Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. And we have an audience of political junkies uh, here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. You don't object to that title, do you? No. Welcome that with open arms. One of the slips of paper, Aaron and I have been going through some of the questions handed, and this is something we wanted to talk about, and I'm glad it was also um, prompted by a question from our, one of our audience members, and it reads, uh, as I read in the Gazette and listened to Iowa Public Radio, it seems that Republican candidates for state or federal offices are less likely to present position statements or participate in interviews. Is this a concern? And you've tapped into something that, for us as journalists, is a, a clear concern. What's going on at the Gazette in this area? Well, let me tell you, the Gazette sent a survey to 51 uh, people running for Iowa House and Senate this year, asking their thoughts on topics, including abortion, school funding, CO2 pipelines, and public safety measures. Only 29 candidates responded, with 21 of those being Democrats. So it, it wasn't just Republicans who declined, there were some Democrats as well, but it was higher on the Republican side. Why don't they think they need us? Well, I mean, part of it is a, is a tactic. Conservative voters like when their candidates bash the media and like when their candidates say, I'm not meeting with the liberal Gazette editorial board because they won't give me fair questions and they won't give me a fair chance for an endorsement and so I, I won't meet with them. And, and I mean, I think Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman has kind of set the tone on that. He's been repeatedly, you know, highly critical of our editorial board and the Register editorial board and, well, any editorial board that he doesn't agree with. But 
mean, we did face-to-face -face interviews and Zoom interviews, and we got turned down by most Republicans this year. We, we, you know, we sort of were part of that survey trying to get information for endorsements, and it didn't work out a lot better. You know, so it's a tactic. Part of it's also some of these candidates don't see any benefit to going out in a venue in public or in an editorial board meeting or in the media in general and have to answer questions they don't want to answer that they, you know, may make them look a different way than they want to look, you know, based on their talking points and their messaging and their strategy. So they don't see an upside. Uh, they know that, you know, newspaper readership has declined. They know that they can probably reach the people they want to reach through social media and Facebook posts and, and Twitter and all of, uh, all of the various platforms. And so it's a, it's a twofer. They, they avoid taking tough questions that, that might cause them a problem, and they get to bash the media, which is... I mean, which appeals to the base. Yeah, it's just a win-win. A, it's a yeah, so. and, and they see that it's been effective, right? I mean, this is the playbook that, uh, that Donald Trump employed. And um, anyway, um, we actually um, talked about this uh, last week on, um, on Iowa politics. Um, and uh, my colleague, uh, Aaron Murphy, um, talked about how, you know, this is not an ego thing for us, right? Um, you know, it, it's not that our ego is getting bruised by um, these politicians not deciding to participate in, you know, debates that we moderate or to respond to our questionnaires or to talk to, to the editorial board. The, the people that end up losing out are the voters, right? It's Iowans that lose out. It's Iowans that um, lose out on having candidates who are able to withstand the scrutiny, who are able to withstand the questioning who are able to clearly articulate their message and, and their stance and, you know, who are able to, again, you know, stand up to, to that cross-examination. And I would argue that that makes for a better candidate and that that's something that is beneficial for all parties. Althea Cole, as a more conservative columnist at the Gazette, do your colleagues, you disagree with any of that interpretation of why many candidates are just not opting in to uh, participating as, as previous generations have. So the thing is, media is anymore a, an extremely diverse industry uh, as far as the methods by which people get their news. And because not only the internet, which we've had for decades now, um, but more specifically wireless internet and wireless internet devices, there is just this infinite world of, of where you can get you know facts or what you think are facts. And it's so easy to just limit your sources to sources that are telling you what you want to hear. I think that's on both sides of the political aisle. You know, we, we saw that from the mini uproar on Twitter when uh, we thought that our debate moderators did a great job and some people disagreed and they were upset with the way it was moderated and everybody who was upset uh, favored one particular candidate over another. Um, I do think it is extremely sad that so many people are existing in these, you know, kind of blind news universes where they only um, seek out sources uh, that they want to hear. For me, it, it, it sometimes it's kind of a tightrope because I have a history in, you know, political activism and and policy activism as a conservative, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, <laughs> I'm a journalist. At least I think I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm a journalist. My Twitter says journalist. Um, no journalism experience before I joined the Gazette. You know, I, I joined as an editorial fellow thinking I was going to write a couple columns a month for a year and say I did it. As far as 
conservatives telling me, oh, we're so glad you write for the Gazette. I get that all the time. Oh, we're so happy to see your columns. Or, oh, I didn't know you were writing for the newspaper until I saw it on Facebook. Okay, great. And it, yeah, they don't see it because they're looking for sources that, again, you know, even if it's not what sources that specifically tell them what they want to hear. It's sources where they feel the news is being written or the facts are being reported or the commentary is being stated by people who share the same perspective as they do. And I have always believed that differing perspectives are the healthiest thing in the industry, as evidenced by the fact that I, as a conservative, joined um, a newspaper you know, as far as I'm aware, I'm like the only permanent conservative writer at the Gazette right now. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a title I'm happy to have. But I will say this, uh, there have been many conservatives out there and I, you know, anytime somebody says, you should write a column on this, my eyes go crossed. Um, but I've told more than one person that they can go kiss a toilet seat if they think I'm going to write something because they want to hear it. Uh, it's got to come from my very authentic perspective, and I will never do anything differently. That brings us uh, close to the end of uh, this uh, edition, this Pints and Politics edition of River to River here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. We wanted to have some fun talking about ads. Of course, any uh, campaign is full of ads, and uh, I was out with the audience right before we started collecting a few views. Posed the question, what political ad this season is on your love or hate list? Brenda out there in the audience and a number of others pointed to the Brenna Bird against Tom Miller. <laughs> Give him the bird <laughs> refrain. It's evidently effective. It's stuck in your mind. Uh, Rob Sand, the state auditor's uh, portraying a super frugal guy. What, turning off the lights in, in an ad, saving Iowans from waste, according uh, to his ad. I wanted to play one that this is Linda Paulson. She's uh, running for Utah Senate. You'll hear an 80-year-old woman, a conservative, District 12, it says, in Utah, and she is doing 90 seconds of, of rap in one of the most notable campaign ads of 2022. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Let me hold this up. District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Love God and family and the Constitution. How Linda. long are you going to make us listen to that? Linda, Linda. Linda Paulson there. Nobody here will be, unless somebody's imported from Utah, nobody voting or not voting for Linda. In our house, we've been enjoying the mailers that come home with the uh, political um, attack ads, and we fight over who gets to do the dramatic reading of said ads. Um, my son, who's 12, usually gets to do that. But we asked our panelists to come up with a, a claim against one of us here on the stage that they would do in their best political ad voice. So here's mine. Todd Dorman. He spends tens of dollars, or he gets tens of dollars in donations from the hair care industry. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. How, how can you trust someone with that much hair? <laughs> well, well, now I, I think I have an idea for Ben's attack ad. Oh. <laughs> We're, we're on opposite ends of that hair spectrum, aren't we? <laughs> All right, what, what else do you guys have? 
out the coal. She says she's an Iowa State fan, but secretly roots for the Hawkeyes. How dare you! Aaron, I hope, as my co-host, I hope you won't mind that I picked you as my target here. It's okay, fair. Here goes. This was composed in the parking lot as I was about to come into the building, so here goes. Erin Jordan calls herself an investigative reporter. A snoop or a nosy busybody would be better names. Why doesn't Erin just mind her own business and, and get a life instead of asking all those innocent-sounding questions and sharing what she discovers with everybody for the sake of the public good? I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like communism. <laughs> Let's tell Aaron this election season, keep your nose in your own dirty laundry. I'm Ben Kiefer, and I approve this message. Very good. I'm going to have to get a recording of that. For, uh... All right. I think I can come up with something on the fly. Ben Kiefer, public radio celebrity or petty thief? <laughs> Here's a picture of Ben with his many tote bags, his coffee mugs, his public radio socks. He used taxpayer-funded swag to decorate his public radio swag pad in his basement studio. <laughs> All right, thanks, Todd. Come back again for another Pints in Politics. Pints and Politics recorded yesterday evening, October 20th at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. My co-host was Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan, our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton, all of the Gazette. Find out how you can attend the next Pints and Politics at thegazette.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Our producer and audio editor today, Samantha McIntosh, sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.